Put your glasses up to your life. Hey, welcome to the second ever episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang, my uh, weekly conversation <laughs> via podcast uh, between people who write for a living. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the author of several books, Sports Illustrated, former Sports Illustrated writer, current Bleacher Report contributor, and the music you heard in my intros from the great MC White Owl. And uh, my guest today is uh, Howard Beck, who coincidentally is the second Howard. Um, with a B for her last name, senior NBA writer, Bleach Report, uh, former Lakers beat writer for the uh, LA Daily News, former Knicks and Nets beat writer for the New York Times. Uh, Howard, can you hear me? I can hear you. This uh, is... Thanks. This is an this is a this is an honor, an honor <laughs> to be to be the second guest and and to be the second straight Howard B. Uh, I hope only hope I can live up to the uh, the high standards that Howard Bryant set. Yeah, I don't. We're all skeptical. You know, we just we thought we should give you a shot, but we're we're just uh, we're skeptical. But Here's so um, here's something I've been thinking about, and I'm sort of fascinated by, and I, I think this a lot from my own career and different writers I talk to. Um, you've been covering the NBA for a long time. Uh, you've been involved with the NBA for a long time. We just had a big day in the NBA with uh, yesterday with Chris Paul with Phil Jackson, and I wonder how are you not sick of it? Like, <laughs> no, I, I'm actually being serious. Like, because I was thinking about like I remember when I was covering baseball. And at first it was like, oh, there's a trade. This is so exciting. There's a trade I'm going to cover. And after a while, I was kind of like, oh, there's a trade. You know, oh, a guy switching uniforms. Like, how do you maintain your enthusiasm for news, whatever, 20 years into the gig? No, that is a great question and a totally fair question, despite the fact that I initially chuckled um, <laughs> when, when you brought it up. Um, I, I think this operates on different levels. So as you know, because you've been in the business, you know, nearly as long as I have, I think I got a few years on you. Mm -hmm. But at, when you first start, everything is new and exciting and fresh. And, you know, whether you're covering, you know, the, the superstar who just broke his leg and it's this big, you know, uh, you know, what's how is the team going to handle it? You know, what's the timeline for returning, whatever. And like every one of these stories, they all repeat. Steve, Steve Springer from the L.A. Times, the great Steve Springer. Mm -hmm once told me, and I butcher this every time I bring it up, he once told me, like, in my first couple years on the beat out in L.A., something to the effect of there are only, like, five stories in sports. <laughs> and, and I think he named them. And I think one of them was, you know, overcoming adversity. And one was, you know, the guy coming back from injury. And, you know, like, there, there aren't that many, like, themes. We just continually repeat them. Right. And I was, wow, you know, he's right. And you see it over time. And so... The, the answer to your question is, no, it's not fresh anymore. When Chris Paul gets traded, my first thought is, oh, well, that's interesting. It's not, oh, my gosh, like, it's not mind-blowing. It's not the same reaction you had as an 18-year-old or a 25-year-old. Um, it, it's all – we've seen everything by now. We've seen LeBron James leave Cleveland, which was a shocker in 2010, but then it wasn't as shocking when he went back in 2014, although it was still kind of surprising. And then Kevin Durant left last summer. And while that was really shocking, but maybe not so much, like you just become a little numb to it all. And it's just another story that you try to get your head around and analyze and make sense of, or comment on if, because we are in an era of punditry and we're all counted on now to be more than just reporters, but, but commentators. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, look, there's a certain sameness, to it all on a day like yesterday. Like I woke, I woke up 
uh, at, I don't know, 7 a.m. or whatever. And there were already, you know, text alerts on my phone from people having tweeted about the Nixon, Phil Jackson, likely parting ways, firing, whatever it was going to be. And my first reaction was, oh, okay, I know what I'm doing today. But I wasn't stunned. um, And I wasn't particularly, I was, you know, I wasn't charged up about it. It was just like, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing today. And that's interesting. And let's see what I can find out. So, um, but yeah, I mean, look, just to, to wrap up the thought here, I did 16 years of being a daily beat writer assigned to a team, seven on the Lakers, eight plus on the Knicks, and then a, 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 like two thirds of a season on the Nets in my final year at the, at the, at the times. And that stuff I can't do anymore. Like, I don't think I could go back to being a daily beat writer. I churned out, you know, uh, my average at the times, I think was like, I, I ran the numbers once. It was like 270 bylines a year or something. And almost all of them were just, you know, daily, you know, game stories and, and follow-ups and all that stuff. And on the Lakers, it was even higher than that. I mean, I, I, I 350 stories a year easily at the Daily News. And that stuff I can't do anymore. I would not be able to do that daily churn of the drip, drip, drip of, of a season where it's, oh, they're on a three-game losing streak, or now they're on a five-game winning streak, and what does it all mean? And this guy said that, and now this guy's responding. And it, that stuff just – I have no appetite for it whatsoever anymore. Yeah, you know what's interesting is um, – I don't know. Do you know Jeff Bradley at all? He used to be with ESPN. No. All right, no. so Jeff Bradley was a longtime baseball writer, and he was at ESPN the magazine. And then he went – to be the national baseball writer, I think of the New York star ledger. And, um, while he was there, they put him back on the Yankee beat and he's about our age. And he was just, you could, with every Facebook post, you could feel the misery from him. Um, and I think people don't realize how, I don't know when you're 25, I imagine being a beat writer might be one of the most exciting things you can do. Yeah. And within five years, I don't know. How long does it, how long does it take to have the life beat out of you as a beat writer? <laughs> it's funny. I, I think I've told this story before when I was covering the Lakers, you know, and it was seven years and it was, you know, people, when I talk about it, they'll say, when did you cover them? Oh, 97 to 04. And it's Shaq Kobe. Wow. That must've been amazing. And yeah, a lot of it was. And, and especially now from a distance, I can look back through, you know, rose colored glasses and, and feel like I, I covered this amazing uh, you know, play this, this amazing time in, in, in basketball, this amazing era, this, this amazing team. But at the time it was incredibly stressful. <laughs> and, right. I, and, and, you know, Shaq and Kobe are fighting with each other and Phil Jackson's, you know, lobbing grenades left and right. And um, so there were times when, even though, you know, that's not your conflict, it's not, you we're not the ones in the line of fire, but you're, in, you're in the midst of it every day. And it, it does, it, it wears it on you. And I used to have this running joke with, with John Black, the longtime Laker PR guy, I would say, John, one of these days, I'm walking to the end of the court. I'm like, we're in their practice court in El Segundo. I'm going to walk to the end of that court. I'm going to put down my credential and my tape recorder, and I'm going to walk out. <laughs> you know, like, like, the, like the, the, the grizzled old cop, you know, turning in his gun and badge, you know, or right. something. Right. Um, Wait, I got to tell you, of- the sad thing about that is, I remember uh, Buster Olney once told me when he was covering the Yankees, he broke his hand, and, or he broke a finger, and he's covering these guys every day for years. And he said, one player noticed and said, like, oh, what happened wow. to your finger? Like, he literally covers these guys every day, and one guy noticed. You would put down your badge, and they'd be like, is it time to eat yet? <laughs> Can we eat yet? <laughs> it's funny uh, you bring that up. There's Because we have this, right? We, 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 you form these relationships on the beat. And, you know, uh, my, my friend Tim Kawakami once said, like, I'm not friends with 
the people I cover. I'm friendly with a lot of people I cover, but we're not friends. And I always thought that was an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that always stayed with me. And I, and I buy that a lot. And I don't think everybody does buy that. I think a lot of people, you know, especially now, I think they're, the relationships sometimes are, are too close. Um, but, you know, it, it brings up this, this, you know, this idea that, that we have to create um, a rapport and a relationship even though we all know there's a little bit of facade to it all. And, you know, look, that, that goes on between players, too. I mean, we cover all the time. We'll talk about all oh, these two guys on the team, and they're so tight. And the second one of them goes to another team, they're never talking to each other again. So mm-hmm. there's, like, these fake NBA friendships. But a uh, winding way of getting to a story uh, from back in 98 during the first NBA lockout, players are having a, a big meeting in Las Vegas to try to, to vote on the, like the latest owner's proposal to try to end the lockout. And we're standing a bunch of us reporters in a hallway in like one of the casinos leading to a conference room, waiting for these players to come in. And as the players are entering, if they recognize some folks like, you know, reporters that they know from their, you know, home city, they're coming up and shaking hands or whatever. And I think Shaq at one point saw me, he's like, Hey, all right, man, the hometown media or something like that. Big, you know, you know, typical Shaq line. Right. And then Mike Wise, who at the time was at the Times, I was at the Daily News in L.A. at the time, Wise says, <laughs> very presciently, he says, he goes, man, you don't know that these guys would come to your funeral. Oh, my God. Like, that, like, like he says, you know, everybody, we're all pretending like everybody all knows each other. Like, these guys aren't coming. You, you died, but these guys aren't coming to your funeral. And like, it's a very, those are like a very jaded journalist thing to say, right? Yeah. Um, but <laughs> probably true. Yeah, probably you know. true. Um, the only guy I ever know. So there used to be a Reds first baseman named Sean Casey, and yeah. he invited the Red beat writers to his wedding. Wow. And I've never heard of anything even close to that. I, I do know of a baseball writer who's had uh, a player invited to, to their wedding, um, and I think vice versa. Right. So, I mean, I think it happens. I mean, like if you're, you're around the same people day in, day out, especially on baseball. I mean, it's a long season. That's a lot of days to be spending with each other. So – you know, I think it happens and I'm not being judgmental about it by saying it gets too cozy, but I do think that, you know, part of doing the job is, is to have a bit of professional distance because you never know who it is you're going to have to call out and then have to deal with the backlash um, when you criticize them or when you say, you know, like if you become buddies with the GM and now you're like, they made a terrible trade and you got to say, you know what, that, that trade sucked. You know, they, then you got to deal with, instead of them just being angry at you professionally, now it's, a strain on a relationship. So I don't know. For me, there are a lot of people I like and, and that I've gotten to be, as I say, friendly with. And I, I would almost consider to be friends, but it's not like hanging out friends. We're not, we're not palling around. We're not going on vacation together. Um, I'm, I'm already married, so I can't invite him to a wedding anyway at this right. stage. <laughs> right. Um, did you, when you were younger, I don't know if you went through this. I definitely did covering baseball. Um, I used to judge players I, I can see this now in hindsight on how nice they were to me. Like yeah. I was a sucker for a guy knowing my name. You know what I mean? I'd be, people would be like, Oh, what's Tory Hunter? Like, Oh, he's a great guy. You know, like because he knew my name or because he was nice to me. And I feel like I had to get past that to become a better journalist. Maybe you never went through that though. No, I think we've all been through that. I mean, I think, with varying levels of awareness, I think some people maybe don't quite pick up on it, but, and I think it's funny. I think the players um, themselves would do well to, to learn this. I've told a couple PR people I know, you know, if you told your players, especially the ones who are a little bit more prickly, 
you know, they don't have to be like angels and they don't have to be the greatest interview. And they don't, but I'm telling you this, if you just could teach your guys that you're working with a couple small things, like, like look us in the eye when they're answering a question, Mm -hmm. because it feels like there's a human connection, even if they still hate us at the end of the day. Look, look us in the eye. Use my, my, my first name because we are all suckers for that. We, yep. I mean, we really are. And, 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 and if I happen to cross paths with one of your players in the arena on a game day or we're, you know, we're all in the same city during, you know, on a game day or playoffs or whatever, and they happen to pass me on the street, like say hello, like I'm an actual person. <laughs> because even if we don't like each other, that stuff goes a long way. You, and I mean, first of all, it's just – you know, come on, just human uh, interactions, just civility, it's just courtesy. It's it's just, you know, realizing that we all, you know, we're all just people trying to do our jobs and, and get by in the world. Um, but it but it also does like there's a little bit of ego stroke involved, too. And I do think that if you're not conscious of it, you might go a little easier on a guy. And the example I always use is Rick Fox. Like people people forget now, Rick Fox was highly unpopular outside of L.A., like fans of other teams hated Rick Fox because on the court, he just seemed like the biggest asshole. Mm-hmm. And, and Rick knew that Rick's one of the, one of the smarter guys off the court, one of the nicest guys you could possibly meet off the court and just a class individual and very grounded, but on the court, he was a maniac sometimes and right. he would stir it up. And now he got in a couple of fights during the time I covered him and got suspended at one point. And I think we all probably went a little easier on him in the coverage simply because we all liked Rick. And you're, again, it's, it's, it's mostly subconscious. You're not doing it because you're trying to protect a guy or you're friends with him or whatever it may be. It's, it's just, it's human nature. If, if, you, if you think a guy is a quality person and they are one of the people who has treated you with dignity and respect day in, day out and had these great conversations and has always been available and cooperative, you kind of, you just even if you're not conscious of it, as I say, you, you kind of uh, give them a little bit more benefit of the doubt. And if a guy's always been a dick to you, you're probably not going to get as much benefit of the doubt. And again, it's not to be vindictive. It's just kind of human nature that these things will creep in a little bit. And were so you, it goes a long way if these guys just like try a little harder. Were you covering the Lakers when uh, Isaiah Ryder was there? Yes. What, what was he? This is such a random question. But what was he like to cover? Um, dicey. And it's interesting because, you know, the Lakers played the Blazers so many times in the regular season and playoffs over the span that I covered them. And so he was still with Portland the first time I ever interviewed him post-game or pre-game locker room. And I remember him just being seeming really intelligent and engaging, like a really bright personality, had a charisma about him um, that my first interaction with him was very positive. But when he got to the Lakers, and this is toward the end of his career, I think it ended up being the end of his career, um, you know, he wasn't playing much, you know, he, you know, didn't really grasp, you know, the triangle and, and you know, plus he's playing on a team with Kobe and he they played the same position more or less. I mean, he could, he could play a small forward too, but there, he wasn't a happy person in that environment. And, you know, I think he may have had some other issues, frankly, but yeah. he, over the course of that season, it, it, it got, it got dicey. It got tense. There was an incident where, um, he kind of was semi-threatening toward a couple of reporters in the parking lot driving out one day. You know, the way the Lakers are set up at their facility, the current one, is that the door that we all go in and out of as, as media uh, goes through the player parking or leads us through the player parking lot. And so he's tri- driving past 
and with his window down and he, he asked like, you know, who's, you know, you know, fill in the blank reporter's name or where's fill in the blank reporter's name. Cause he was really pissed. And then he, he kind of said something semi-threatening uh, and there were a couple of the times he, he snapped at us. He was, you know, he was an interesting individual. Um, and Phil Jackson had a real soft spot for him. He always has a soft spot for, for kind of the, the either hard luck cases or guys who are, you know, um, have, have been through, you know, tough times in their personal lives or, or whatever. So that was, you know, just like with him and Rodman, Bison Dele. Um, so Phil wanted, wanted him to succeed, but it just, it, it was, it was a rough season for him there. Yeah. Did, did you enjoy, was there a, uh, someone said pure enjoyment uh, as a beat writer, Shaq or Kobe, like who did you actually en- get more enjoyment from covering? Huh? Boy, the, the, the Shaq or Kobe questions are always tough. Um, it depended on the day of the week sometimes um, because Shaq at his best was phenomenal. And that's all everybody remembers. Mm-hmm. And back when we used to have something called the all interview team, uh, which uh, uh, fell away at some point, but Shaq would get on the all interview every, every, uh, every year because all the national guys would vote for him. And I was always arguing against it. Like, don't, don't keep rewarding him because you may see him light up the room a few times a year and tell these hilarious stories and, and, and play the clown but the rest of the time, or a lot of the time, he either shut down on us for days at a time, or he would do what he called shamming, the short answer method. Mm-hmm. And he would just sit there mumbling, and he would make, you know, he, he would just give us just cliches, and he would do it intentionally. So Shaq at his best was one of the best people you could cover. Shaq at his worst was a grumbling, moody pain in the ass. And he knows that. <laughs> <All right>. Like <laughs> um, Kobe was a little bit more even keeled for most of the time I covered him. Now, there was... You know, a very tense period, obviously, with, you know, the case in Colorado and that whole season and times when things were bad with Shaq. But Kobe for especially like I got there in 97. So it was Kobe's second season. This is still a young Kobe. This is still a, 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 a not jaded uh, version of him um, who hasn't gone through all the battles with Shaq, who hasn't gone through his own personal stuff off the court, who hasn't become estranged from family members yet. And, and all the other falling outs that, that, that happened over time that I think made him a little bit more cut off, but he was really engaging. Like his first couple of years, I, I loved talking to him. We, and, and that was a time where you could just talk to him. And it was, right. you know, it was his pre Twitter, pre social media, pre internet. You could just hang out and chat with guys. And I, and he was the guy who I related to better of the two of them. He also had amazing hair back then. People forget Kobe Bryant had some <laughs> of the best hair in the history of the NBA. He and did. Then he shaved it. Um, I was thinking about this, um, Today, I, I, you probably saw this, the, the tweets from Donald Trump this morning toward the Morning Joe. Ugh. Um, and I was thinking about Trump and sort of James Dolan. And, <laughs> well, you know what I was thinking about is um, yeah. we have to – so one guy owns a – like I always say, whenever I hear someone call James Dolan Mr. Dolan or someone talk about, you know, well, Mr. Dolan is blah, 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 I always think like – I don't feel like he deserves that respect. He's just a guy who had a rich father who inherited this thing and he's been a mess. And then I look at Trump and I think when people say the president, and I wonder, I was thinking, is it ever okay for the media to fight back? Like you see Trump sort of calling out guys or his press secretary will call out the media as dishonest and low lowlifes and blah, blah, blah. Are we, and, and Madison Square Garden certainly had this very long run of treating the media like crap. Are we in the media ever allowed to say, you know what, go fuck yourself. That is bullshit, blah, 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 blah. Are we ever allowed to fight back or is that just not allowed? 
I think we exercise much more decorum on our side of the room than some of the people we're covering. That's for sure. Because you think about all the famous like coaching meltdowns, you know, ESPN once a year will like trot out, you know, the, the Jim Mora meltdown next to the Dennis Green meltdown next to the, um, I'm trying to remember all the yeah, other no, famous ones, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Bobby Knight. All, right. Yeah. And it's just a, this, this, I mean, it's always entertaining. Uh, I'm sure we could pull it up on YouTube right now and, and, and watch it all, but we don't, scream, we don't scream back. We're not cursing back. We're not, we're just kind of sitting there, you know, with our mouths agape usually and, and then trying to make sure our recorders are still running and that we're jotting it all down because, you know, we gotta, we gotta write about it later, but no, I, I feel like our side of the room has the, the uh, has to keep up the decorum. I mean, we're there to cover them. We're there to interview them. They're there to, you know, hopefully illuminate us on, on what's going on with their teams, whether it's the coach, the GM or the owner, whatever. Um, firing back. I guess it also depends on it depends. Like it's, it's every, like everything else. It depends on the, the context of the situation in a press conference. No, we shouldn't be getting into a back and forth where it becomes like a screaming match. That would that would be uh, denigrating to, to, to everyone in the room. I think you just you, you deal with that stuff later. But also, if you're a news writer and a beat reporter is more of a news writer, you're not there to, to do the, you know, Dolan is a moron column. That's up to the columnist. And then they right. can, you know, they can drop all sense of decorum and go after them the next day in the paper, especially here with the tabloids. They can pretty much say anything. You know, I worked at the Times where, you know, the columnists, if they were going to criticize, we're going to do it with a little bit lighter touch because that's just the Times way. But, yeah, I mean, you know, look, we in the media in New York have pushed back in various ways over the years on Nick's media policies and, and the way they've dealt with the media um, really pretty much to no avail. Um, and I feel like, you know, the, the guys who are still covering that team every day and, and you know, bless them for hanging in there. Um, I think largely people have just kind of given up. I don't think I don't think anybody thinks it's a battle that can or will ever be won until and unless Dolan relinquishes control of that team. Is that the worst beat job in the NBA? Um, yeah, I think it probably is. I think it probably is. Uh, you know, you know this because you you did spend some you know a lot of time around baseball. I mean, were you, you actually were a beat writer for a while, right? Only like were, no, I was a magazine beat writer, which just is the magazine, easiest job okay. in the world because you float from place to place. So you were parachuting in, but. Yep. but you know, but you know, obviously, you know a lot of of guys in that realm, and and, and guys in, in in my realm as well. Where the joy of being a daily beat writer, the benefit of being a daily beat writer assigned to a specific team is the relationships. You know, uh, as I say, we try to keep it you know on a professional distance, but still, it's the rapport that you develop. You you really get a feel for a team that you can't if you're just parachuting in. Like I that that's my job the last four years. I'm the parachute guy now, and. The, the thing that I somewhat miss about being a daily beat writer on a team is that I don't know these guys quite as well. I don't get have quite a, a sense of the pulse of a team because I'm just not around them every single day. And, and that's just you, you put in that time to be around a team because that's the benefit you get from it. And that's the value of having beat writers still, even in this era of, you know, game stories are supposedly obsolete and all this other stuff. Yeah, but if you're there every day, that's when you get the best uh, understanding of a team that leads to better relationships. It leads to better information leads to better feature stories that are away from the court, that, like, all of that. So you miss that a little bit, but um, I bring it up in the, in, in, with regard to the Knicks, because one of the shocks to my system was going from the Lakers who, despite being in a major market with multiple media outlets, covering them day in and day out with national people coming in with all of the, 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 
just energy around that team and the spotlight around that team, you still, they had an environment because the Lakers allowed it to be this way where you could just kind of, you know, you know, shoot the shit with guys and you could, you could have conversations and it didn't always all have to be just set interviews or where every interview was the whole pack talking to one person. You could have side conversations with guys and that was important. That's how you get to know a team. That's again, that's how you become a good beat writer. The Knicks make that impossible. And there are a couple other teams that make it harder than it has to be, but nobody else I think goes to the lengths that the Knicks do to make it, um, to, to put a massive distance and chill the relationship between the media and the team. Well, I know you can't, like, you can't, um, there's always going to be someone there recording your interview with someone. And I wonder, like a Nick employee, and I wonder, um, do you think the Knicks are trying to intimidate the media to write positive stories, or are they just in try, trying to intimidate the media not to write any stories? Like, what is their end game? I don't know if there is an end game other than the fact that Dolan hates the media. And so this is what he wants. Um, I, I think more than anything, it's, it's just, you know, some of this goes back to, you know, old stories from the, like the late nineties, early two thousands, where there were sort of embarrassing things written that freaked Dolan out. And so he, he started imposing rules that would keep that he thought would keep bad stories from coming out. I mean, really what he's trying to accomplish and failing miserably because it's not possible to accomplish is he, he, he wants to, to somehow avoid all negative coverage or any bad stories coming out about, you know, you know, players fighting with each other or the coach not liking a guy or, you know, something going on off the court. You can't control that stuff. It'll all come out eventually anyway. But, you know, initially I think it stems from him wanting to, to somehow, you know, curtail negative coverage, which, you know, give me a break. Um, but there is no real end game. You know, that hasn't worked. Uh, all they've done is create more tension and more, more, um, resentment from the the media that cover the team. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. They take a lot of the enjoyment uh, of, of, of the job out of it. And look, Hey, that's not their concern. It's not up to them to make us happy, but right. you know, right. it's, it's not benefiting them either. And I think it ultimately is hurting them because as an organization, they get zero benefit of the doubt. A, a, a small mistake by the Knicks is turned into you know, a nuclear explosion. And that same mistake made in a market where there's a, a better relationship between the, the team and the media would not be n- nearly um, the, uh, the, 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 the effect. So uh, it's, it's backfired on them in a major way. Right. I, uh, this is random. I read, a, uh, read an interview you did. You, someone asked you who was the worst NBA interview. And you said Kevin Garnett. And your quote was, he doesn't even try to hide his contempt for the media. And that disdain has rubbed off on younger teammates. Um, <laughs> he was obviously important when you were covering the Nets. I mean, they traded that, you know, bounty for him. Um, was he that bad? I actually was off the, the Knicks Nets roller coaster by then. That was the year. That was my first year at Bleacher Report. So uh-huh. I was, you know, I'm still based here in Brooklyn. So I go to more Nets and Knicks games than anything because of, of proximity. But um, Garnett throughout his career in, in Minnesota, Boston. Um, and I think that quote was probably from during his Boston time. Uh, you know, he, he's one who I you know, I could tell you, you know, PR people around the league NBA PR beat writers. I mean, he just was tough. I mean, we all have an incredible respect for the guy. I mean, hell, I wrote a, like a 12,000 word epic oral history of Garnett that was largely praising him uh, because he was like just a fascinating and amazing player. 
but as a personality, as, as someone to cover, he would, you know what? The frustration there too is like when he talks, Garnett's really smart, really insightful about the game, about, you know, team dynamics, about a lot of things. He just doesn't want to do it. And so, you know, he do these interviews where he's always looking away. He's never looking at you. He, he, he creates a, a, a tension. He's an intimidating person and he knows it and he plays it to his advantage. Right. Um, again, not necessary. Um, unfortunate. Cause I, I think he's a guy who, um, has a, a lot to offer and stories to tell and, and just chose, you know, not to do so a lot of the time, you know, that said, you know, there are a handful of guys who covered him back in the Minnesota days, who I think have, have good relationships with him. But in Boston in particular, I was always hearing these stories about how he was just kind of sowing discord with the younger players between the younger players and, and the media, just basically trying to tell them like, these guys are the enemy. And it's, you know, look, the, there are days when I guess we are, but that's, that's not the role. No one's going in every day saying I'm trying to find a way to trip these guys up or, or screw them somehow. And, um, poisoning the well like that and making guys believe that that's what we're doing. I mean, that's as bad as what the Trump white house is doing and trying to poison people's beliefs about how uh, the media are covering him and, and trying to turn everybody against journalism and truth itself. And so, yeah, I'm sensitive to those things. I'm actually, I, I am uh, increasingly uh, I don't know, agitated, upset, angry over this sort of, like, I just, I just had this exchange today with someone where they're like, not, you know, 80% of you guys are a bunch of liberals. And I always feel like saying, you know, like, I grew up a Mets fan. As soon as I was covering Major League Baseball, I was able to separate that. And no longer, like, we are able to separate, you know, yeah. the vast majority of us are able to separate what we cover and what we think in our off-the-field life. And I just, I don't know why that's not allowed for more, you know? Yeah, it's it's a strange thing. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could obviously go down, but um, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, it, it, you know the, the, the Republican Party or the right wing is always loves to demonize the New York Times. And, you know, obviously I spend quite a while there, but not on the news side. So, you know, I, I don't really I can't really tell you what happens over uh, on, on, in the metro section or in the national desk or down in the Washington Bureau. But I, I know reporters. I know how, you know, how we all function and, and the way, you know, our, our value system as reporters has nothing to do with like left right values conservative liberal values republican democrat values. it has to do with wanting to tell great stories or wanting to find out the, the truth or wanting to like, scandal has no party you know right. and, and 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 you know look we all know scandal sells and i'm not uh i don't want to overplay that but that's you're looking for what's going wrong that's that's news that's you know that's dog bite that's you know man bite biting dog right so um People so conveniently forget or ignore intentionally when they're making these 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 broadsides against the Times. Times is the, is the paper that broke the Hillary Clinton email story. Uh, yeah, the Times right. the Times has broken all kinds of the, the Times was out in front I think on Whitewater back in the day. Like the Times has, has written all kinds of stories that have you know hurt you know democrats uh prominent democrats there's no party involved here it's it doesn't matter what your affiliation or what your beliefs are you're doing a job and so yeah when people try to draw those lines and and create this this uh this this polarizing environment where it's somehow us against them and, and you know the media is all liberal it's just it's it's absolute bs and it's again it's 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 toxic it's it's poisonous yeah um 13 you uh you left from uh, you left the New York Times to go to Bleacher Report, which um, 
at the time I thought was absolutely insane. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, why the hell would anyone leave the New York Times to go to Bleacher Report? Bleacher Report was at the land of clickbait and slideshows. Uh, were people when you when you told when you when you told your bosses at the New York Times that I'm leaving for Bleacher Report, did they require you have an immediate drug test, or what was the reaction? <laughs> no, um, it's funny because at the time that I went to them to tell them what, what was happening and, and that I was likely to do this. Uh, they had been in a period of time there where a lot of people had been leaving the Times for electronic media, for, for Yahoo, which was just starting up its news operation. And so, like, not out of sports necessarily, but other areas of the company, that been, uh, the, the newsroom, they'd been losing people to digital startups and places that had never done news before, but were adding it. And so, to an extent, it was, it was just kind of part of that same stream. And in fact, I think somebody even wrote a trend story where I think they, they tacked me on there along with like, you know, David Pogue and, and some other people who were much bigger and more important than me. I think it was actually the year that, that, um, uh, that Nate Silver had taken the 538 blog to, to ESPN too, which again, I'm not in his league. No. Come on. <laughs> but, but, but so it was to them, it wasn't necessarily shocking. It was more shocking, I think, to the rest of the world and uh, my family and friends and, and, and to me myself, like I, I, sometimes still look back thinking as cautious as I am. And I kind of, you know, I'm generally not like the biggest risk taker. I'm generally uh, don't like getting too far out of my comfort zone. Like that was uh, very unlike me to take that, that leap. Um, but it just happened to be the right thing at the right time. Um, I wasn't looking to leave the times. I had never sent out a resume in nine years there. I had never looked to, to do anything else and thought I would spend the rest of my career there. But Bleach Report came along and recruited me at a time when I had just been pulled back onto the Knicks beat after spending some time on the Nets, which was a, a bit of a, of a you know refreshing um, respite from from the Knicks insanity. And I was back on the Knicks again, and I was thinking, you know, how many years can I do this? At that point in time, the Times was not doing an NBA national beat. There was just basically Knicks and Nets, and so the beat I really wanted was something to, to where I would I would cover the whole league and not be strapped to a team, and certainly not the Knicks. And, you know, Bleach Report came along and started recruiting me, cold called me at a time when I probably was a little bit more open to to leaving, mostly because of what I was doing, not where I was doing it. And Turner had just, you know, Turner Sports had bought Bleach Report the prior year. So now they were part of this massive media conglomerate under Time Warner. So it wasn't like going to some little cute startup that that, you know, where you're you're really taking a massive risk like there was massive financial backing there they'd been bought for i think 200 million dollars like there was you know a relationship with uh with turner and i knew you know part of their pitch to me was listen you know we'll use you on nba tv you know maybe you know, they at one point they even talked about cnn which that that part never really panned out would have been would have been nice but um right. but you know that's part of time warner as well so there was listen there's a tv component here there's a video component you'll you know we'll put you on camera and you can you will do these these short form videos that we're now specializing in and we have this massive growing audience we are you know we, we are our number of uniques per month we're catching up we're third behind espn and yahoo and we're gonna we're gonna pass yahoo and we're gonna we're gonna try to, to catch espn and our app is the best sports app out there and they were absolutely right on that count and our audience we've got you know espn's got the older audience we've got the millennials locked up we've right. got this young audience and so there was all this energy behind it that, that was really intriguing and the chance to do new things you know, I, I was never a video guy. I was never a TV guy. I never wanted to be a TV guy. But you get into your mid to late, you know, not late stages of my career, but mid career, mid life. And you think, 
maybe I can do other stuff. Maybe I don't want to just churn out 260 stories a year. Uh, this is a chance to mix it up, learn a few new things, learn some new skills, expand my horizons a bit. And yes, you know, they, they paid a little better than a newspaper does. That's a low bar. Newspapers don't generally pay well. And so all of that was intriguing and ultimately for me too intriguing to pass up. Right. That's amazing. And you don't regret it. Not for a second. And listen, like I, I will tell you, honestly, there have been times in the last four years where I found myself missing certain aspects of the times or just missing newspapers because I'm a creature of that environment and I'm a newspaper guy to the core and I will always identify that way. Um, and there are certain things about the times in particular, people I worked with and the, 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 the caliber of people there, the culture, the ethos of that newsroom, that it, that's just what I identify with. In Bleacher Report, it's not a journalistic institution. They've kind of grafted a, a journalism department onto the operation. Right. But at its, at its core, it's more of a, a, a sports entertainment site. And so that, that's a different environment. It's a different ethos than what I was used to. So I won't say you know, that, that there were times over the last four years where I, I felt I was a little bit um, just out of my element. But, you know, you you adjust and, and there's there was so much more positive about it, including over the last year, as you know, because you contributed to this uh, this new part of, of, of BR. There's BR Mag. It's, it's you know, it's a magazine. We're doing all this high end content, a lot of long form, um, some experimental stuff. And that's my main uh, duties now is with BR Mag. So I'm not churning out. I'm not, I don't have to be one of a thousand people. I mean, this week I was one of a thousand people to weigh in on, on Phil Jackson and the Knicks, right? right? But if I were working for another organization, that would be what you do. Every, every time something flares up, you, 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 know, you do your two cents on whatever the controversy of the day is, the trade of the day, whatever. I, I'm not doing that. I'm doing columns here and there. I'm doing some game coverage during the finals, but I mostly am doing – you know, bigger trend pieces or longer features or just interesting stuff that is away from the court. Um, you know, as we talked about earlier, do you get tired of, of the, the, the general like churn of a season? Yeah, sometimes you do. And, and this, this being at BR and being under BR mag at this stage has allowed me to stay fresh by doing more interesting in-depth stuff uh, that is different than what I've been doing in newspapers for years. And, and, you know, that's the irony is, yes, I had to go to the place where they specialized in clickbait and slideshows and 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 lists for all those years to have the, the the platform, the resources, the time afforded to do these bigger, more compelling stories. And and look, there's stories that my Times editors would have loved, but that wasn't it just wasn't my role there. I don't blame anybody and there's no resentment. It's just that that wasn't my job. My job there was mostly to cover the Knicks, the NBA at large. Um, on a day-to-day basis. And so, but this, this afforded me the chance to do something different. And so no, like no, no regrets at all. Let me ask you that. I got kind of a final question here. I, uh, I interviewed um, excellent, the excellent Lee Montville a couple of months ago and um, great writer. And yeah. I asked him about sort of aging in regards to covering sports. Um, and I think of this with you because I watched the NBA draft the other day with my nephew who was entering his senior year of high school and it hit me as we were watching it, you're these guys' age. Like, the Knicks had just drafted that French point guard. And I was like, you're the same age as this guy, basically. He has a year on you. And I was saying, like, these guys are old enough to be my – I mean, I'm old enough to be their, their parents. And, you know, when I asked Montville about that, he said, he said uh, um, 
you know, overall, I, th I, I think all of us are tied to our time frame in relating to athletes. When our music is no longer their music, we're in a different situation. Do you know what I mean? There's a time when you're the same age as the athletes, then the same age as the managers and coaches, then the same age as the owners and the Hall of Famers. It's the same scene, but a different perspective. And I wonder, you covering the NBA, um, and now being old enough, um, you'd be a young father, I guess, but still a father of some of these players. Does it change the dynamic of writing about athletes not being contemporaries anymore? I don't think so. I think it, you know, look, it, it, it changes the conversations you can have. Maybe um, it's, a, you know, is it a little harder to relate? Yeah, possibly. But, you know, I mean, I think all of us, especially in the reporting business, you, your job is to be a conversationalist. Your job is to, to be able to, you know, when, when you're 22 years old, if the, if the assignment was to go cover, you know, um, the retired, you know, 75 year old legend, you, you, you go do that, even though he's got 50 years on you and you, and you, you find a way to, to make those connections because that's the job. Um, and I think lots of, lots of, you know, most of us in this business, you, we have the personality to do that or, or we wouldn't be in the job. And so you still find a way to, to, to have those, to, to create that rapport, to find a way to get good stories. But you know that the, you're conscious of the distance for sure. Like my music and their music are clearly not the same at this stage. And what I'm watching on TV or even what I grew up watching reference points, you know, I mean, I, 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 a Seinfeld reference could be completely lost on, on, you know, on the younger players now, um, which is sad to me. But, but, well, did but you, I don't know if you saw this the other day, the, uh, there was, I think it was Clay Bellinger and the Dodgers had never heard of Seinfeld. And yeah. Yeah. And I was shocked actually by the reaction from people who were surprised by it. Like, it was like, holy cow, this guy's not, well, he was four years old when Seinfeld went off there. Why would he hear Seinfeld? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, look, it's on constant loop on reruns. It's just like, like you know, I, I grew up watching old black and white reruns of like Leave it to Beaver, right? And that wasn't my era, but it was on, it was, you know, <laughs> but there were only like five channels when I was a kid yeah. and it was on one of the channels. So, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, we should realize that these guys wouldn't be wouldn't know it as well, and it wouldn't be a touchstone for them, and it would seem like something from the old days. But time is tricky that way, right? Like you know, because again, we get to the stage of life like something that's ten years ago doesn't feel like that long ago. Where yeah. when you're twenty years old, ten years ago is a lifetime, and so it it, it plays these tricks on you. And yes, we, like it's something you have to constantly be conscious of that our reference points as we get older in this business are not going to be the same. Um, and, and it, it, it's, it's going to take a, maybe a little bit more effort and, and just more listening. Don't get too, too uh, entrenched in your own ways. Don't be that cranky old man. Who's like, you know, talking about uh, what the kids are listening to these days like that, that you, you have to, you, you have to, to, to fight against that and um, keep yourself open to everything because to do the job effectively, especially covering, players who are going to be continually younger than you that's that that's part of uh that that's part of the, the job um but yeah i think over time you find you find you're relating more and more to the broadcasters the gms the other people who are in your own age zone and like all the guys i covered are now either assistant coaches or broadcasters um from from the earlier time in my career like all those old old ex lakers you know mark madsen's an assistant coach and brian shaw's an assistant coach and Derek fisher became a coach and Shaq's in the studio and like all these guys they're they're um you know that's that's how you know you got old when everybody that you covered as a player earlier in your career is now in a broadcast booth or a front office do you think if you went up to like i don't know andrew wiggins tomorrow and you said like yo that new drake track is hot do you think he would, <laughs> he would look at you funny or would he be like, oh, hey, 
<laughs> Howard Beck. Yeah. First of all, I don't think I could pull that off with enough conviction to, <laughs> to, to, to truly test it. Um, and even if I did, I think you would probably see right through that. Like, dude, what are you talking, what are you yeah. talking about? Um, so no, I, and you know, we see that too, right? Like you sometimes see you guys trying a little too hard to, to, to be that, that hip and to connect. And it's, I, I just don't, I don't think you should even try at that stage. I think you, you find other ways to uh, connect with a guy talking about, you know, their hometown or, you know, something you just read about them or, you know, there are, there are other ways to find kind of the, the, the small talk to, to warm up and, and not, uh, not overreach. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, well, Howard, I, uh, you are now officially the second writer to Sling Yang and uh, can follow you at Howard Beck on Twitter, making us both sound young and hip because you're on, you're on the Twitter. <laughs> that's, yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, look, that's, you know, isn't that where all the, the hip people hang out? Before we go, though, because I was the second person to, to sling Yang, mm-hmm. now, I, now, I, now I can finally ask, because I had not heard the expression until you launched the podcast. So <laughs> what, what's the genesis of slinging Yang? I, I, this might show how un, unhip and old I am. No, that's okay. So slinging Yang is, um, it'd be the equivalent, it means talking shit, but it's like, it's not an expression that anyone would use anymore. So I would say... Singing Yang was probably late 90s. So it'd be the equivalent of being like, if you said to me, your shoes are fat, like anyone under the age of whatever <laughs> would look at you funny, but anyone yeah. older the age would be confused why you're trying to use it. So it makes you a loser. So slinging Yang is, like, is sort of like a loser <laughs> phrase to say. And since I am a loser, I decided to use it. That's, that's, uh, that's phenomenal. And, Thank you. Uh, and uh, the, the very invocation of, of fat P-H-A-T, um, like that's, you know, that, I think that says it all. Now I know exactly which era we just got trapped in. Exactly, so, exactly. Tremendous. Um, well, uh, thank thanks, you, Howard, so much. Thanks for, for having me. It. I yeah. appreciate it. Take care. I want to thank Howard Beck for joining me on the second episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. Uh, you can listen to us on the Bumpers Network and also on iTunes. I'll try doing I say we. It's actually me in my closet. Uh, with the music of the great MC White Hour, you're listening to a track called The Dead Poets. So uh, hopefully you'll, you'll come back next week. I'm going to make this a, uh, a regular thing, conversations between writers, not just sports writers, but writers from all walks of life. If you have any suggestions for people you'd like to uh, have on the show, hit me up at angold22 at gmail.com, or you can just uh, send me a message on Twitter at J 